We'll be reading this morning from Romans chapter 3, Romans 3 beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith, this was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart From the works of the law. And I'll pray. Again, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for all that you have accomplished for us and given us in your very self. We thank you for the free gift of eternal life that's offered to us through simply trusting in Jesus. We ask God that as we think on the things that your word says and which we confess to believe, that these things would be... um, rich and, and full in our lives, and that we would live in the truth of what we profess. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as we've been doing for the last few weeks, um, we're working through the um, Evangelical Free Church of America doctrinal statement. And this is an Evangelical Free Church, Bernie Bible Church, um, so it is our doctrinal statement. And um, we're now on Articles 5 and 6. The first article, by way of review, dealt with the nature of Scripture, I'm sorry, um, yeah, Bibliology. Um, And then the second, on the person of God, Theology Proper. And then um, we looked at Christology, the person of Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And now we're looking at soteriology, um, the doctrine of salvation, how we are saved. It's important that maybe just, again, by way of reminder, we're not saying that a person who accepts this doctrinal statement is saved. Um, That is far from the case. I'm reminded of what Jesus said to the Pharisees who had really a very good doctrinal statement. Um, We would have been comfortable with the doctrinal statement of the Pharisees. And yet Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. So you can have a great doctrinal statement and not believe in Jesus for eternal life. On the other hand, I'm not one of those people, I don't think um, this church is characterized by those that would say, all you need to do is know Jesus, and knowing the scripture is not important. There's a, a, um, an illustration, terrible one I think, of um, a father who was busy at work in his office And he had his young son with him, and the son was distracting him. And so the father took a a picture that he had, and he cut it up into a bunch of pieces and and scrambled it up and said, put this together. 
a very complicated, intricate picture, and he thought that by having to arrange the pieces, it would occupy the sun um, for a long time. Um, actually, it wasn't a picture, it was, a, it was text, um, just a printed page that he had, and he just, just, but in just a very short time, the boy had it all put together again, and the dad said, how did you do that? And the son said, well, I just ignored the text, and I noticed that on the back side, before you'd ever torn it up, there was a stick figure of a man. And so I just focused on the man and ignored the text. And people are using that illustration all over Christianity to say, we can ignore the text and focus on the man. That's not the way it works. It is in the text that we know the man. But you can study the text and never believe in the man, the Son of God. So it's not one or the other. Jesus is the Word of God. And we, this text is the revelation of Jesus. So it is not one or the other. And it is important for us to be able to articulate what we believe based upon the Word of God. So my goal this morning is to cover Articles 5 and 6. This is the first time we've done two at a time, but I think we can get through this. And Article 5, I think this is up there, coming, Article 5. We believe that man was created in the image of God, but fell into sin and is therefore lost. And only through regeneration by the Holy Spirit can salvation and spiritual life be obtained. Article 6, again on the same subject of our salvation, we believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His resurrection provide the only grounds for justification and salvation for all who believe. And only such as receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior are born of the Holy Spirit and thus become children of God. So let me unpack this again. So Article 5, we believe that man was created in the image of God. So the first part of that is we believe that man was created. This doesn't say that this church or the E-Free Church is adamant that it was six literal days. Though I am personally adamant that it was six literal days. But it is not the E-Free Church position to define how God created but in saying that God created man, we are saying that God did not use evolution. That we are uniquely made by God. That excludes evolution. We would know this from other than Genesis 1 and 2 where the creation account is given. One passage that I find is very significant, it is in Romans 5 verse 12 where we are told that therefore just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. The significance of that statement is it says that sin and death came into this world through one man, that one man being Adam. That can't be true and evolution be true. And so... What you think about creation versus evolution has major ramifications doctrinally. It actually guts the gospel. If you cannot accept 
that God started with one man and one woman, then you can't explain how sin and death spread to all men. Nor can you explain how one man's act of righteousness, which is the rest of Romans 5, could result in the justification of all who place their faith in Christ. But there's this correlation, there's this relationship between Adam and us that is the same relationship between Jesus and those who place their faith in him. There is this corporate headship, federal headship, that the theologians like to call it. And so our salvation is, is paired with the understanding of how sin and death came into this world. And so if the one isn't true about one man, sin and death entering the world, then neither can it be true that one man could offer himself for us. So it is hugely significant what we believe about how man started. He was created by God. He was created in the image of God. I've already spent a, a previous sermon talking about the image of God, so I won't go into it in much detail, but this is simply saying man is not an animal. Man is the only creature made in the image of God. The angels have not been made in the image of God. The animals have not been made in the image of God. We alone have been made in God's image. Well, what does that mean? And, and we, again, I spent some time on this, and we, and we like to focus, well, it means that we worship God. Well, so do the angels. So that's not what makes us in the image of God. We alone are made in the image of God. Yes, it involves worship. It involves having a conscience. It involves having understanding of right and wrong. Again, those things we would seem to be true, maybe even of the angelic beings, though we don't know everything about them. But what is unique with our humanity that nothing else shares with us is that we have been created to be inhabited by God. Our humanity depends upon the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. We cannot be what God made us to be without having the Spirit of God within us. This is what separates us from all else that God has made. We alone have the potential of being inhabited by God, and this is how God made us to be. We believe that man was created in the image of God, but fell into sin and is therefore lost. Fell into sin. We can think of that being a little bit like falling into love. It's just an accident. You can't predict it. You don't know how it happened. That's not what we mean here. This is not an accident. And this is not like falling into love. When man fell, we're talking about Adam who chose to rebel. He chose to sin. He chose to transgress. It was a willful act of disobedience on his part. And so those words, sin, transgression, offense, disobedience, those are all words that are found in Romans 5, 12 to 21 concerning what Adam did. This was not a mistake, though, yes, he shouldn't have done it. This was intentional. He did what he did purposefully, not by accident. And now because of Adam's sin, all that were in Adam have fallen into sin as well. We are born sinners. We are not born good. 
Man is now fallen from his created purpose and function. And what was God's created purpose and function for us? To know God, to fellowship with God, and to glorify God as no other creature could. That being through the influence of God's indwelling spirit. Because man has fallen into sin and he has fallen from God's purpose for him, he is lost. Lost. Man without God, Majorian Thomas said, is like an animal without instinct. That's a very good, clear illustration of being lost. God did not create us human beings with instinct. He created the animals with instinct. They don't have to read books. They don't have to. They're just born knowing what to do. We are not that way. We have been created to be led by the Spirit of God, to be indwelt and led by Him. That even as instinct directs the animal, that the Spirit of God would direct us. And so when we don't have the Spirit of God, we are lost like an animal without instinct. Man without God has no power of self-direction. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his steps. That's describing a condition of being lost. Takes a long time for a person to come to that awareness, sadly. Our world would tell us that we are, that we are self-actualized, self-directed beings. And that we can make truth, that we can make life. And many times it's not until a person comes to the end of his life and he realizes that he was lost every day of his life. That it all means nothing. Proverbs 20, 24 says, Man's steps are ordained by the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Man without God has no Ability to improve or change his condition or state. He is helpless. Helpless. He is a sheep without a shepherd. He is like a leper without hope of cure. Man without God is truly lost. He dwells in darkness, the scripture said. And only through regeneration by the Holy Spirit can salvation and spiritual life be obtained. Only through regeneration. Man's only hope, exclusive hope, is outside of himself and outside of this fallen world. When Adam sinned, not only did all of humanity fall, but all of creation fell. All humanity, all creation is under the curse of sin. And if that means anything, it means there is no deliverer, there is no salvation from within this world. That is why God, who exists apart from this world, sent his son into the world for the world because there was no hope for the world from within it. There never will be. Your hope is not yourself. Your hope is not your family. Your hope is not government. Your hope is not country. It is not church. It is only Jesus Christ. There is no salvation anywhere other than in Him. A man must be born again 
to have the life he was created to have, eternal life. John 3, 3, you must be born again. This regeneration, this rebirth is by the Holy Spirit. It is not by experience. It is not by prayer. It is not by memorizing scripture. It is the work of God. Only God, the Holy Spirit, can effect the change that is needed in each one of us. Regenerating us is his answer to our dilemma. dilemma. Through new birth, he creates a new creature and restores us to true humanity. This is God's work. This is what Jesus was trying to communicate to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is going, I don't get it. And Jesus is saying, it's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. And so the Spirit of God works. But it is the Spirit's work in response to faith. Only through regeneration by the Holy Spirit can salvation and spiritual life be obtained. Salvation is from the power of sin. It is from the power of the devil. It is from the power of the world, not their presence. There is still sin in us. There is still the devil, and there is still the world. But we are saved from their power. Salvation is also from ourselves. Praise God for that. In Acts, it says that he sent his son to deliver us from our own wicked ways. We'll never have a greater enemy than ourselves. And salvation from the destructive tendencies of our own person is a great salvation. There are several aspects to salvation. It is immediate and, and positional. The moment a person places his faith in Christ, he is saved. And he will always be saved. He is at that moment made a child of God, and he cannot become an unchild of God or non-child of God. Salvation is eternal because salvation is the reception of eternal life. Salvation is also progressive. We are daily being saved. We also refer to that as sanctification. Salvation is also in the future, what we call glorification. When we see Christ, we will be like him. Spiritual life is what we don't have apart from Christ. We have physical life before you place your faith in Christ, but you do not have spiritual life. That's not to say you don't have a spirit. Man has body, soul, and spirit. But your spirit is not in union with God's spirit. You are separated from God. So you do not have his life within you. Spiritual life, again, is what we don't have apart from Christ. We are born spiritually dead. Spiritual death is separation from God. It is the absence of eternal life. Spiritual life is union with God. If you have your Bibles, you can just briefly look at um, Ephesians chapter 2. And it starts out and says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then in verse 5, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, we were made alive together with Christ. And then he describes what that death is. Death in our, trans in our trespasses. Dead in our transgressions. And he says in 
um, as you read through this chapter, he says in verse 13, for example, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So we are no longer separate, we're no longer estranged, but spiritual life is to be brought into union with God by the bestowal of his life to us. Spiritual life is the life of Christ lived in and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, John writes and says, And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. Spiritual life is the life as God intended it to be. It is life lived from the Spirit instead of from our flesh, our humanity apart from Christ. Romans 8, Paul says that we are no longer obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. We've been freed from that obligation, but now we have been brought into the very life of God through faith in Christ. Salvation and spiritual life are obtained by the activity of the Spirit, not by our activity. Don't you love the story of the rich young ruler? He was a good man and trying so hard to do all the right things that he might be, might be in right relationship with God. And no matter what he did, and he honestly believed that he had kept all the commandments, been zealous to do the things of God, Paul would have said the same thing about himself, that he was zealous for the law and to, and to obey God. The rich young ruler, despite his good intentions and, and, this, and the commitment of his life toward righteousness and, and being obedient to God's word, he knew in his heart that he did not have eternal life. I take heart in that, that an unbeliever can know that he is without the life of God. No one needed to tell the rich young ruler that he didn't have eternal life. He knew it. And so he came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, how might I obtain eternal life? It's a man who knew he wasn't saved and did not have the life of God. And he knew he had tried everything to obtain them and still didn't have it. Salvation and spiritual life are by the activity of the Spirit and not by our activity. They are received as gifts through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.8 is oftentimes one of the first verses we memorize. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. We saw the same thing in the text that I read from this morning in Romans chapter 3, where it speaks of it being a gift. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. 
In Romans chapter 5, over and over again, the gift is emphasized. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Verse 16, and the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. And then in verse 17, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life. One, two, three, four, five times in those few verses, it is a gift. It is a gift. And aren't we glad? He just says, receive. Just receive the gift. Article 6. We believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection provide the only grounds for justification and salvation for all who believe. The blood of Jesus Christ is the only payment for sin. Nothing else. Animal sacrifices, even your own personal sacrifice, are insufficient and inadequate to pay for what we have done. There are religions around this world that herald self-sacrifice. There are some people in their zeal and their desire for righteousness will go so far as even to have themselves crucified. Literally crucified. Thinking that in some way their acts of penance, their acts of contrition, even beating themselves... And, and it's just amazing what people will do. Take whips and just beat themselves. Flagellation. Until they're just, they're, their backs are just ripped to shreds. Thinking that there's something we can do. And there is no amount of sacrifice. Animal sacrifice or personal sacrifice. That could secure what Christ has done for us. Hebrews 10, 4 11 to 12, verse 14, that whole chapter of Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins or anything else that we could do. We need to understand, and we do as Christians, that sin is against the holy, righteous, infinite, and eternal God. And that is why it is impossible for man to do anything that could remedy what he has done against God. Forgiveness, salvation, justification, redemption, none of it can be simply bestowed upon us because God's righteousness and justice demands that payment be made for sin. It's another reason that I read from Romans 3 at the beginning of this service where Paul says here that in verse 26, for the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What Paul is saying is that a righteous God, even a loving God, cannot simply say, I love you and I've, forget, and I've forgiven you. Let's just forget about it and move on. He can't do that because he is also a righteous God, a just God. 
And sin must be paid for. We all understand this intuitively in our hearts. That's, that your forgiveness does not take away what the person did. It's still a reality. And your forgiveness doesn't remove the offense or pay for the offense. And their asking for an apology doesn't take away the offense or remove what they've done. This is why forgiveness is so hard. Because we know it doesn't change anything. The only thing that can satisfy is blood. The wages of sin is death. And the only way that our sin can be removed, the only way that we can be forgiven, is for the payment to be made. And that's what Jesus has done. He has paid what we owed. This is why Paul says that he is both just and justifier. Because it is, it is not righteous to declare righteous the unrighteous. It is not just to declare just the unjust. The justice and righteousness of God must be satisfied. And it has in Jesus Christ alone. So for me to think that there's any other way that I could ever secure the salvation and the spiritual life that I so desperately need apart from faith in Christ is the ultimate deception. Really pride. I'm saying that I can undo what I have done? Absolute pride. Refusal to see the magnitude of my sin. I don't know if you remember when we went through Matthew... And we got to that end of chapter 18 and Jesus talks about the man who owed um, um, 20,000 talents of silver, I think it was, and the man who owed just a few days wages. And that 20,000 talents, if I remember what, or 10,000, whatever it was, it's equivalent of 200,000 years of wages. That's the enormity that's being pictured of our sin. And there is no way for us to come close to undoing what we have done. There is no way for sin to be paid for other than through Jesus Christ giving himself as a substitute for us. Only in this is God propitiated or satisfied. Penance, repentance, works of any and all kinds are worthless for securing justification. And then, and his resurrection. Now, I, I separated these two. They're not separated in our doctrinal statement. But, again, we believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ and, and his resurrection provide the only grounds for justification and salvation. So I'm separating them because I want to be true to the text here. The only grounds for our salvation and justification is not the resurrection. It is the blood of Jesus Christ. But because of the resurrection, I can know the saving power of Christ in my life. If he wasn't alive, then I could not experience his saving power each moment of every day. But again, justification is based on the blood of Christ. His death shed for me, offered for me. So in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions and he was raised up 
because of our justification. The justification took place first. The resurrection took place after that. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9, much more than having much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So his resurrection means that he is alive. And I am not trusting in the teachings of a dead man, but I am trusting a living person to save me positionally and progressively. The death of Christ is the only grounds for our justification before God. Our sin is paid for only through his death. The resurrection does not pay for our sins. It is proof that payment has been made and accepted. The resurrection of Christ means that he lives to save us. We have a living Savior. And this is for all who believe. And all means all. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever, whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. Jesus died for all, even as Adam's death, as Adam's sin brought death to all. Such a strong parallel is made there in Romans 5 again. Just as Adam's death brought, Adam's sin brought death to all, Jesus' death brings life to all who will believe and receive the gift. And then the last part of Article 6. And only such as receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior are born of the Holy Spirit and thus become children of God. Only such as receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. As many as received him... To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. How many? As many as received him. What does it mean to receive him? The end of the verse, to believe in his name. As many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus must be received. Jesus is eternal life. This is the only, it is the exclusive means for being saved. We are not born into this world children of God. We are born enemies of God, children of wrath, children of disobedience. But we become children of God by receiving Christ, the gift of Jesus Christ, believing in him. And then those who receive are born of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's very clear what he's excluding. That Jesus Christ receiving him is the only, the exclusive way to become a child of God. And so he excludes what the other possibilities would be. Not born, 
He says, who were born not of blood, meaning that you can't enter this life a child of God. Second, not of the will of the flesh, meaning that you can't determine to become a Christian, to become a child of God. No amount of will, as the rich young ruler demonstrates, is sufficient to become a child of God. You can go to church every day of your life. It is not enough. You cannot make yourself a child of God. You cannot be born a child of God. And then the third option, which he also excludes, nor of the will of man. No one else can decree you a Christian. No church can say to you, I confer childhood of God status on you. No person has the right to say, I say you are saved, therefore you are saved. The only way to become a child of God is by God's activity, but of God. So let me just work through this again. Only such as believe, as receive Jesus Christ, believe in Him as Savior. Only those who receive and believe in Jesus have the right to become children of God. It is the only way. And as you receive Him, believe in Him, the Spirit of God causes you to be born again. The order there is significant. Receive Believe and you shall become a child of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. No one becomes a child of God by natural birth, decree of others, or personal effort. New birth is of the Holy Spirit in response to faith in Christ. And last of all, let me say this. This not only, what John is describing here not only excludes being born a Christian, being made a Christian by others, or exerting your, your, your own willpower sufficiently that you could become a child of God, but it also excludes something else. We are not adopted into the family of God. Now this is going to get controversial. There is only one way we become children of God. This is what he's saying. This is the only way we become children of God, by new birth. You are not adopted into the family of God. You are born into the family of God. And there is a major difference. But there are a few times in Scripture where adoption is mentioned. Our favorite one, at least for some, is Ephesians chapter 1. There is also Romans chapter 8. And there is Galatians um, I believe it's chapter 4. Rather than look at all those passages, I might in a second look at them, but I want to start by just quoting some of that. Um, I appreciate their, their scholarship. Two men, Warren Wearsby and Lewis Berry Chafer on adoption. Start with Warren Wearsby because he's a little simpler. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. The word adoption in the New Testament means being placed as an adult son. When we come into God's family, I'm sorry, we come into God's family by birth. 
But the instant we are born into the family, God adopts us and gives us the position of an adult son. We do not enter God's family by adoption. The only way to get into God's family is by regeneration being born again. The New Testament word for adoption means to place as an adult son. It has to do with our standing in the family of God. We are not little children, but adult sons with all the privileges of sonship. When a sinner trusts Christ and is saved, as far as his condition is concerned, he is a spiritual babe who needs to grow. But as far as his position is concerned, he is an adult son who can draw on the father's wealth and who can exercise all the wonderful privileges of sonship. Lewis Berry Chafer says much the same thing. In the New Testament, there comes a spiritual use of the word adoption, which signifies the placing of a newborn child into the position of privilege and responsibility attached to an adult son, immediately and without regard to maturity of years. Adoption means that the one thus placed has at once all the privilege and all the liberty of a full-grown man. Spiritual adoption imposes also the responsibilities belonging to full matureness. This is clear from the fact that everything that God addresses to any believer, he addresses to all Christians. The same holy walk and exercise of gifts is expected from all the children of God alike. Since the Christian life is to be lived in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, this requirement is reasonable. For his power to enable is as available for one person as for another. So this is tremendous truth that he's getting across here. You are born into the family of God. But in the Greek society, a newborn child had no rights whatsoever. In fact, a parent could murder his child and not be charged with a crime. That's how little value a newborn child had in Greek society. In the Greek world, adoption was never of children. Adoption was only of men, grown men. So if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, that's what's going on in the movie. You have this grown man who's adopted by a Roman soldier. Remember the movie? If you've never seen Ben-Hur, you ought to see it. And so, and so that's the point of what's happening is that children in the Greek society were never adopted. And women were never adopted. It was only men. And so this is why every time you find adoption mentioned in the New Testament, we are adopted as sons. It never says we are adopted as sons and daughters. But we are, we are born into the family of God, sons and daughters, children. The word for child and the word for who gets adopted, son, is not the same word. One speaks of an adult, the other speaks of a small child. Paul will argue in Galatians that the child has no rights. The child is under tutors. But his point being, you were born in the family of God, but you, are not, you do not have to wait until maturity to get all that is yours. 
because the adopted child has all the privileges and all the responsibilities of an adult. Because that's what's being adopted, is an adult. And so he's conferring upon this brand new Christian all the privileges, all the responsibilities that an adult, mature Christian would have. And this is why Lewis Berry Chafer says, all the imperatives of Scripture are to all Christians. There are not some imperatives to baby Christians and other imperatives to older, mature Christians. This is why Paul will say carnality is not about being a new Christian. Carnality is about you can be an old Christian and be walking according to the flesh. In other words, you can be an immature Christian and have known Jesus for 20, 30 years. This adoption is not how we come into the family of God. So in Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul writes and he speaks that we've been predestined to adoption, he's not talking about salvation, folks. He's saying we who are in Christ have been predestined to have all the privileges, all the rights, all the responsibilities of an adult son. This is what we've been saved for. There is no second stage to the Christian life. You're saved and now you have to wait until maturity. But we've been saved and therefore it has been predestined that we be God's adopted sons is what he's saying. So predestined to adoption has nothing to do with getting saved, it's about what happens after you're saved. Immediately upon salvation, God confers upon us the status of an adopted son. Which, by the way, is also a point of our security in Christ because adopted sons could never be disenfranchised. A born child, you could cut them off, but an adopted son could never be cut off. There are so many things in Scripture that speak of our eternal security. And this is just another, that we are born into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. We are immediately adopted into a place of position and responsibility. We don't have to wait to maturity to get it, and it can never be undone. Your physical, your spiritual birth cannot be undone, and the adoption cannot be taken away, rescinded from you. It's good stuff. So once again, articles... Five and six about our salvation. We believe that man was created in the image of God, but he fell into sin, and he is therefore lost. Some of our students, some went to Israel, others went to San Antonio, and I think they all came back from a little bit I've already gleaned saying, boy, people are really lost. One told me this morning, I said, what was your, what would you, what was your experience in Israel? What a godless place, he said to me. Godless place. Students that went down to San Antonio and they were visiting the different religions. And, and I think the, they would say the thing that they were most impressed with is the hopelessness and lostness of people. We truly have hope. Man is lost. And the only way to be saved is through regeneration by the Holy Spirit that salvation and spiritual life can be obtained. We believe that it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that there is the only grounds for justification and salvation for all who will believe. And only such as receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior are born of the Holy Spirit and thus become children of God. These are simple 
truths, but so vitally important. I'll close this in prayer. Lord, I do thank you again so much for your word and for all that you have done for us. We thank you, God, that we've been born into your family and we will never, ever have that revoked. That we have been also blessed with the status of a mature, adopted son with all the privileges and responsibilities that come with that. Thank you that our salvation is offered to us as a free gift. We need only receive. Simply believe in Jesus and we shall be saved. And thank you, God, that that salvation is never intended to be our work, but yours alone. And that in it, that you have restored us to humanity as you've intended it to be. That being made in the image of God, that we might be indwelt by the Spirit of God and no longer live a self-directed lost life, but to live a life that is directed truly by your Spirit who indwells us. Thank you, God, that we are not lost, but we are your children under the influence of your Spirit every moment of every day. And this will be for all of eternity. In Christ's name, amen.